From a neighborhood on the outskirts of Baltimore City, USA, this is For Your Infotainment. And to complicate matters further, here's our host, John Walker. I'll never get tired of uh, the the strange feeling of uh, <laughs> of being introduced by somebody, but it's the way I've decided to start the show. So I think I'm stuck with it for now, Ronald. I like it. You're, you're just gonna have to become more comfortable with it. I, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's one of those things, man. It's an evolving thing. I'm hoping yeah. to get you some high profile announcing gigs. That'd be crazy through this show. <laughs> that would be crazy. <laughs> well, that'd be cool. I wonder how you break into the announcing racket. It might be like that guy with the golden voice. You know, they just found him on the streets. Mm-hmm. These people must train, and they must have a very narrow sense of like, here's how you take care of your voice. Mm-hmm. Here's the way I'll say these words. I mean, what is the equivalent of like speed speed bag training with with voice stuff? I think I just... that would be if I had you come down here and practice saying all of the words like, but from you would be like saying from 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 from. <laughs> And I'd be like, okay, we've got from tomorrow. We're going to work on neighborhood, you know. While punching me in the stomach. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, Trying to get you to force the air out of your diaphragm. Yeah, like it, when, you, when you have to say Baltimore City, USA in, in the intro there, I could be like, Baltimore City, USA. You yeah, know, like, so yeah, just punch me in the stomach. I, I feel like I could... Be a good workout for me, too. Yeah, we, we'd, we'd become like super soldiers. <laughs> or maybe we would become enemies. <laughs> <laughs> or that. Or that. <laughs> You'd be like, you know, John, I was thinking about coming down to your basement for you to punch me in the stomach while I say these right. words over and over again. And I realized there's nothing in this for me. He's like, you're like, see you later. I go, <laughs> I just spit on the ground and leave. <laughs> that works. Well, but this is for your infotainment oh, uh, on the Second Course Media Podcast Network. And we're going to be talking about earworms, those songs that get stuck in your head. I right. normally think of an earworm as a super catchy song that is is zeroing in on that pleasure center and not letting go, and you can't get it out of your mind. But I think it also could be uh, expanded to include this idea of just mm. anytime you can't escape a song or you find yourself continuing to listen to a song, it might not be a catchy song, quote unquote, but it could be some song that resonates with you. So I guess with that in mind, I would ask you, Ronald, is there a song right now that uh, you can't get out of your head? It's really old. That's great. What is it? Uh, Tears for Fears, Head Over Heels. What's funny about that song is I don't think I liked it when it was on the radio, but now when I hear it, I like the sort of overcooked kind of melodrama of those, those oh, yeah. 80s pop songs it's it's a powerful song super simple lyrics and it's one of those songs that you could have at your wedding uh at your funeral mm-hmm. and anything in between yeah you know what i mean like it's it's one of those epic songs so yeah i love it head over heels now you were born in what year 83 83 so that song what, you don't remember it from your childhood. I don't remember it from my childhood. You're not a first wave Head Over Heels fan. Well, my mom listened to that stuff on occasion, and I'd, I'd hear it. But so it filtered through. It filtered through. But it became more real for me once I started like hanging out with kids that were a little different from me. And they just suggest massive amounts of music that I hadn't heard before, and that was one of them. And then to intensify things, I saw it in Donnie Darko. Like, I heard it in Donnie Darko. And and putting a context on a song just makes it so much better. It was a good time for me. I was I was kind of growing up and developing this like for indie, like things that were outside of the box. And that song, I mean, although a mainstream song for me, wasn't when I... When I discovered it, so well, I mean that's that's 
a unique idea to me because I can't help but remember it through the through that scrim of just 1980s pop radio. Mm. And I I think a lot of that stuff what seemed I don't know, it just filled the air at the time and I didn't think much about it. For you to be exposed to it, you must have been old enough, I mean 10 or 12 or something when yeah, people yeah. were recommending music to you. Absolutely. So that means at that time it was a, a 10-year-old song. Yeah. So did you think oh it's some of that 80s stuff or did you did you even have that frame of reference? I I think just cool sounds made like sounds are so funny to me like Mm -hmm. i I mean like and i mean that in like a the most general way like sounds tickle me yeah and and i heard something about how perfectly whatever it was it was Mm -hmm. it was perfectly 80s it was perfectly like i could i could picture smoke machines and lasers and (laughs) trapper keepers and and just like Stonewashed jeans and yeah, we we wore stonewashed jeans and we rode unicorns. Then yeah. it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool stuff like that. Like it, I felt something. Our teachers, it. we had robot teachers with rainbow <laughs> wigs on and stuff. You know, it was like really it. weird. It was a weird time. <laughs> it was slightly before Treasure Trolls. Yes. Right? Was, well, six or wait, seven. Wait, wait. I laughed at that, but I don't know what that. What is Treasure Trolls? Treasure Trolls, the little trolls with the like colorful oh. hair and the you the know gem those, in their stomachs. Those were just called trolls when, like, in the early days. I remember when those first happened, and the idea was <laughs> that you would they were like frequently they would be like a almost like a pin topper. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you would take the pin, and you would, you know, to make their hair fan out. I don't know if that then turned into the... If, I don't know if they it got was the, bigger, yeah. If it was the same company that, that... So rather than just having a stick up their butt, they just made them, like, bigger, mm-hmm. and they were huge. If they took the stick out of their butts, they got bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Tears for fears. Tears for fears. <laughs> Well, all right. You know, this episode is basically just going to be a lot of people talking about songs they can't get out of their head. And and for now, actually, Ronald, I, I appreciate you coming down here and announcing me like you did. But I'm going to turn now to my buddy Chris and talk to him. Do you mind? Uh, that's okay. Yeah. Right. I, I, Do you have anything I'm... you can read or something like that while while we get while we get our conversation on? Well, there was this article about uh... tears for fears. Tears for fears. <laughs> <laughs> Where are they now? All right. All right. Well, we'll check in with you in a bit. Cool. Well, hey, Chris. Hey. Looks like it's just you and me now. Oh, okay. And I've got something I need to say. Close your eyes. Give me your hand, buddy. Do you feel my heart beating? Do you understand? Is that your earworm for for the week? No, I'm just singing to you about the way I feel. Am I only dreaming? That is a great Is this friendship an eternal flame? Flame, and it's a good question. It really is. And that is a good earworm that that has stuck with me over the years. Well, you know what I found when uh, I knew we were going to be talking about it for this podcast, and I went and listened to it, and I found a couple things right off the bat that I had sort of forgotten about, uh, Eternal Flame by the Bangles. One is that it came out in 1989, and I would have pegged it as like 86 or 87. Mm -hmm. I I thought I was younger when I was kind of swept away by it. I always pictured myself at 13 or 14, but I was probably 15 or maybe even 16 when I heard it for the first time. So it seems like I should have aged out of this very like puppy love kind of song in a strange strange way, uh, even though it was written and recorded by adults. But I also discovered that it was uh, four minutes long, uh-huh. <laughs> which it seems in my head like it's two minutes and 20 seconds long. You know, it's a, it's a little ditty, not a not a big overblown pop song. But, you know, it's it still holds up. I, I, I think it's um, 
it's kind of fun to sing, but it's hard to sing because it's got a lot of those high uh, piercing notes. And I think Susanna Hoffs, the singer for the Bangles, uh, for those that don't know, she's reaching for some of those notes, you yeah. know. And I wonder if maybe that is part of why that song feels kind of odd because they were known for much more upbeat songs and that song was a big ballad for them. I don't know if amongst Bengals fans if it's a highly regarded song, but it's definitely one that's stuck with me. And I think it's because exactly of that very immature notion. I mean, there's the lyric in the song where she says, I don't want to lose this feeling. And I think, like, when you listen to that as a kid, you think that that is sort of possible. <laughs> right. But if you listen to it as a grown-up, you go, oh, I got bad news for you, kid. You're going to lose that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> You're out of luck. Well, yeah, it sticks with me. I, I do remember that song, but much more burned into my brain is just the vision of her sideways eyes, which we always joked about, and I oh, guess everybody— yes probably remarked on but she had the i mean for kids who don't know she had the thing especially in the video but she probably even did it on stage of always casting her glance sideways left and right and that is somehow burned into my brain but i think about it kind of cynically now i think that probably you can imagine you know maybe she saw a picture of herself looking to one side one time and she said oh i look good in that picture i'm gonna actually uh, try doing that on purpose and then just looks around for no reason. I mean, there can, you know, surely it's not real. There's not actually a person over on the side of the stage that for some reason she wants to uh, check on without turning her head. You know, I think she probably is like, this is a good look for me. I'm going to look over here and then I'm going to look over here. Well, I remember when I was 13, I had like a stance I like to do in pictures. Like I think I had learned how to cock my eyebrow. Right. And I see a lot of pictures where I was trying to do that same pose. So maybe there's a little bit of that self-conscious, this is a good look for me. Right. It's her It's her duck face. But I wonder if maybe that was something alluring or mysterious about Susanna Hoffs, that she was singing sort of for us or around us, but not necessarily to us. Yeah. And so you, you almost want to lean in and figure out what's in that person's head a little bit more than the person who's singing to the camera, which I mean, I've I still feel awkward with that. That level of like confidence when someone makes a lot of eye contact yeah maybe there's something kind of appealing about a hot woman that is not staring you in the eye but has kind of got her own thing going on she's shifty eyed and i trust this person or is she trying to steal something she's looking all over the place but it made me th i was trying to think of who else in popular entertainment has like an eyeball trick like that can't think of musicians maybe there's somebody that bugs their eyes out or something but comedians you've got eddie Cantor rolls his eyes around and Groucho is always looking up, and I wonder if he stole it from Eddie Cantor or something. So there's, the, you know, there there are eyeball uh, comedians, but I'm not sure how many eyeball musicians. I know when I was a kid, I had to decide between the Susanna Hoffs poster and the Eddie Cantor poster when I was <laughs> right. at Camelot Music at the Western Hills Mall. Yes. It's just 30 or 40 years difference. I found out on Wikipedia that Eternal Flame, well, for one thing, the little historical footnote that when it was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, the, the song that it prevented from reaching number one was Millie Vanilli's Girl, You Know It's True. <laughs> I think that's, yeah. that's decent trivia. Which did top out at number two on the Billboard Thank Hot 100 chart, you know. So it was uh, the, the Bengals blocked Millie Vanilli. Rightfully so. Uh, but the other thing is, and this is supposedly something that Susanna Hoffs revealed in an interview on a BBC show called I'm in a Girl Group, that when she sang this song in the studio, on the advice of producer David Sigerson, who told her that Olivia Newton-John sang her songs <laughs> naked in the studio, Susanna Hoffs believed him and sang Eternal Flame in the nude. That's a crazy story. I wonder if that's true, because that's a very good uh, publicity story. You could spread that just as a story to get people talking. But if she reported it herself, as this is what happened, then I believe her. But I don't know what kind of relationship they had. Maybe there was a lot of nudity in the studio, and we just don't know. Could be. 
it's interesting to think that <laughs> Susanna Hoffs would have been at that point going, you know what I want to do is I want to replicate the the fiery, uh, indelible singing style of Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, yeah, what was the naked Olivia Newton-John song? As I was thinking about that type of song that has an impact on you because of when you heard it, I thought who might be a good person to talk to about music that they love and that might be able to bring up a song that hit them at an influential point. Mm-hmm. And I turned to my friend and yours, Skiz Sizzik. Yay. If anyone knows about Skiz Sizzik, you know that he's involved in music and film and everything in between. You can find out about Skiz's comings and goings at skiz.net. That's S-K-I-Z-Z dot net. But here's Skiz talking about a song that hit him at a young age and has stuck with him ever since. It's the song Girl of My Dreams by Bram Tchaikovsky. Hmm. This is a song that I haven't been able to get out of my head since 1979. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 1979, for anybody paying attention was this great year when these commercial rock radio stations were starting to dip into new wave. And that particular summer, I had a little transistor radio that I carried around with me all the time, and I was glued to the radio. And that was the summer that you heard The Knack uh, with My Sharona, Blondie, uh, The Police with Roxanne, their first single, Nick Lowe with Cruel to Be Kind, The Clash with London Calling, Joe Jackson with Is She Really Going Out With Him, uh, dire Straits with Salton's A Swing. Holy shit. <laughs> I don't think people think of them as new wave songs now, but at the time, this was some really new sounding music and, and not just new sounding, but new looking. Like suddenly well, musicians had short hair. So yeah, new wave, when you say that it might not sound new wave now, as a designation, I find it to be kind of an odd one because it includes a, basically all the bands I love from that era. What does that mean to you? Like when something's new wave, what does that mean? Does it mean it's actually part of that that era and that period? You know, when these records came out, if you were a record collector like I was and you went to the record store, there was usually in the back corner a couple bins and it was the new wave section. Mm-hmm. And that's where you found these records. And it was basically these new bands that had short hair and dressed a little nicer Uh had synthesizers, had kind of a 60s throwback in a way. Um, like the melodies and the, the harmonies and things like that kind of harken back to that era, but it's not musically nostalgic necessarily for right. that era. Yeah, and uh, and it got grouped in with the punk records too. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you would see the knack next to the Ramones. Mainstream music has adopted so many of those bands out of the new wave bin. Mm-hmm. You know, the police ended up being like the number one band in the world, you know, not too many years later. But I think that people, when they think back on new wave, they don't think of these bands as having been a part of that. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I mean, you don't yeah. think of him as having been a new wave band, but that's where his records were found in the record stores. And XTC is XTC, another one. XTC, yeah. I think people, you know, they think new wave, they're thinking Gary Newman and Devo, and uh, and then maybe some of the early MTV bands like Duran Duran, you know, and, and Flock of Seagulls, uh, which almost kind of seem more like, with the exception of Duran Duran, they seem kind of like gimmick bands. You know, they, they seem like they were these cartoonish, uh, and I, you know, I love these bands, so I'm not putting them down. But, you know, it's like it was more of an act. You know, mm-hmm. it was like it was 
kiss, but without the makeup and the, and the, the boots, you know, it was, it was theatrical, you know, in, in different ways. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I repeat at the time, these bands are all grouped in this new wave. And that summer, Bram Tchaikovsky had Girl of My Dreams. And here in Baltimore, I don't know if it was this way everywhere else, but here in Baltimore, that was in heavy rotation. I mean, you heard that song a few times a day on the radio and I loved it. I mean, as soon as that first guitar chord rings out, I was like, oh yeah, and I'd have to stop what I was doing and turn up the radio. I just thought this is the most perfect pop song I've ever heard. What was I, like 12 or 13 at the time? So <laughs> I not feel like I'd heard that many, but it really it really stuck out. When you mentioned doing this Bram Tchaikovsky song, that's the song that came up in the sort of autoplay on uh, YouTube afterwards was Starry Eyes by The Record. Another perfect pop perfect sounding pop song, which is like both of those are songs that I would feel that when I heard them, I was like, I know I've heard this, but I don't know where. And you were even asking me before we started recording this, like, had I heard this song? And I'm pretty sure I did, but I don't know for sure. I don't know. Do you know? Was it ever used in a movie or a soundtrack or something? I don't know if it was, but it did. uh, Let's see. It charted. It reached number thirty-seven, but it was in heavy rotation. And out of all the songs I listed, it seems to be the one that just didn't continue on. Like it, fans of it still know it and love it, but yeah. the general public forgot that they heard that song. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't show up. Like you can buy all these compilations of of songs from that era, and it doesn't show up on there. And you know, if you listen to oldies radio playing music from from that year, you you don't hear this song. It, it, for some reason. What I think is probably the most brilliant song out of all those mm-hmm. is the one that somehow disappeared. And I don't really know why, but for years I've been playing the song for people. In fact, it's kind of easy to find the vi- the vinyl, you know, the album that's from uh, pretty cheap in used bins. And whenever I see one, I pick it up and I've given it to several friends over the years because I'm like, okay, you don't know this album, but you're going to love it here. You know, mm-hmm. is the rest of the album as strong? Yeah, I, I do think that that may be uh, the best song on the album, but it could just be because of you know my experience with it. There's a lot of other songs on on the album that I love that don't sound like it. That, that was one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was looking the song up is that Bram Tchaikovsky was both the name of the band and the guy who fronted the band. But his real name, according to Wikipedia, is Peter Bramel. The weird thing is, is I don't know if it's because of the singing and the arrangement, but just knowing the songs that Bram Tchaikovsky did write and, and had been involved with, because before this, he was a member of the Motors. Mm-hmm. And I hear, you know, I can hear the connection. Yeah. You know, like it, it may just be his voice and his style and everything, but I definitely hear that, oh, the same guy is involved in all these different songs. So to find out that he didn't write this particular song was sort of surprising for me mm-hmm. because I just assumed, you know, it, it just fits with you know everything else that he's done. What else do we really know about the, the band? Or is maybe part of what makes a track like this so alluring that it does come from that era where you had a picture on a sleeve and you didn't really know much more about the band? Again, according to Wikipedia, <laughs> uh, they were a trio. It looks like they were a trio for the first album, which was Strange Man, Change Man. But then I, I believe 
that they became a quartet for the next album, which, uh, depending on which country you're in, it was either called Pressure or The Russians Are Coming. I, th I think the U.S. version was Pressure. So I guess they just added somebody. They probably were touring a lot, you yeah. know, promoting Girl of My Dreams and needed a fourth person because, I mean, if you listen to the, the guitar work on that, for one thing, just the, uh, the guitar solo is two lead guitars harmonizing beautifully with each other so you definitely need a second guitarist to pull that off live mm -hmm. and you know without it it just wouldn't sound right so yeah. they probably added a fourth guy to, to tour to promote that record and then when it came time to make the next record kept them in the band a another example of how prominent this band was at the time is any record store that sold buttons mm -hmm. uh it seemed like i could always find a button with the album artwork from strange man changed man or pressure like and these were very distinct album covers they were they were very i don't even know what style of art you would call that but i mean it definitely worked with the new wave that you know you would not have seen a hard rock band with an album cover that looked like this mm -hmm. and you know you saw that artwork in every record store and it it's just so weird to think that how prominent this band was and yet disappeared i i think maybe the name brom tchaikovsky may have hurt them <laughs> maybe so you know especially at the time the late 70s people might have thought is this a classical record with a weird cover like what is this and maybe they stayed away from it but the next year was gary newman m with pop music the pretenders steve forbert tom petty and pat benatar wow. were all breakout artists but at the time what they were all competing with were Doobie Brothers, Donna Summer, Bob Seger, Bee Gees, Eagles, Little River Band, Linda Ronstadt, Billy Joel, Boston Sticks, Farner, Kansas, and Supertramp. <laughs> <laughs> so if that doesn't distinguish New Wave from everything else. I do remember in the early 90s when I first heard Teenage Fan Club, my first thought was mm -hmm. that the vocals reminded me a lot of, of Bram Tchaikovsky, both the lead vocals and the harmonies. And I often wondered if, if they were influenced. But then whenever I would play it for people... They would say, Brom, check out what? No, no, Big Star. Oh. <laughs> but I, I kind of hear the Big Star mm -hmm. uh, comparison, but I still hear the Brom Tchaikovsky comparison a lot more. But also knowing, well, I don't know uh, where Teenage Fan Club is from. Maybe Brom Tchaikovsky was a much bigger band. I want to say they're Scottish. Yeah. Even today, some of my favorite acts have had charting singles overseas and have never even yeah. cracked the surface over right. here. Was it Trio's Da 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 was like a number one hit in every country in the world but the U.S. <laughs> and didn't even chart in the U.S. until, what, 20 years or 15 years later when it's used in like a Honda commercial. It's Volkswagen, Volkswagen yeah. Volkswagen commercial. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that just figures. That's, that's, that's the U.S. for you. <laughs> well, those things go in cycles, you know, like yeah. the awkward relationship between art and commerce is I'm sort of over it for the most part. I don't begrudge a band. I don't begrudge a band for making a chunk of change. Uh, on on something like that, but I know a lot of my you know more politically minded friends are are disappointed when when that happens, and I, I guess it depends on the context to me or the the product. I get why some people don't like it, but at the same time, if my favorite musician is going to make a ton of money having one of their songs used in a commercial, I'd much rather them make their living that way than have to give up music and go flip burgers to pay the bills. Yeah, and so, and and I, I've heard some like good stories where like Hummer. Mm -hmm. offered a lot of money to bands and nobody would take it i'm like okay that's really cool and then i heard uh, i'm not going to say who it was but somebody was offered a lot of money to do a mcdonald's commercial and turn it down and then for a lot less money did a crayola commercial mm -hmm. you know and you know which i find kind of funny because 
everybody I know that knows that musician says how much McDonald's food he eats. So <laughs> that's why I don't want to say who it is because that'd be kind of rude. But but I do find that amusing. I think it's really cool that he turned down the, the McDonald's commercial and and didn't turn down Crayola. You know, and the good thing is it's, you know, the music is reaching more people. The problem there would be it's reaching more people that are now associating it with orange juice or whatever. Yeah, you that's know. true. Yeah, I've often thought about, you know, writing songs that, you know, 15 years from now would make a really good mayonnaise commercial. Just hoping <laughs> <laughs> you know, that 15 years from now somebody will have that idea. Girl in My Dreams, for years it never dawned on me what the song was about. I just thought it was a real pretty love song. I mean, for one thing, I love the song because I love the feel of it. The melody and the harmonies and the arrangement and the production, you know, just the overall feel of this song. And I never really paid much attention to the lyrics. You know, I knew some of them. I would sing along to it, but I never really thought about what the lyrics were saying. And then one day I sat down and I was like, okay, what exactly is this song saying? Because some of these lyrics don't make a lot of sense to me. And the best I can figure it out is it's actually a, a guy singing about his affections for a mail-order sex doll. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm really bad about that, too, just not bothering to interpret the lyrics. It never dawned on me. Like, when it finally did dawn on me, I had to keep listening to the song and really paying attention to the lyrics. I'm like, yeah, that's got to be what this is about. That was Skiz, and we'll be hearing more from Skiz in just a few minutes, actually, talking about another song that he's enjoyed uh, for a long time. But for now, I'm back with my buddy Chris. Hey, Chris. Hey. I know we talked a little bit about this next subject, and but we haven't really discussed how we were going to uh, approach it. We just knew we were going to talk about something that's kind of been in our minds for, I mean, really as long as I can remember knowing you. We've had a question about a particular lyric in a particular song. Um, and I don't know if you kind of want to introduce that concept to people. We, yeah, we have talked about this since high school, and now it's decades later. But it's infuriating to me every time I think about it is the lyrics of The Doors' song, Touch Me. Not that I look to The Doors to have some great lyrical content or be brilliant or something. But still, it's like, is this even allowed to be a song? When you look at it and read it think about it, there's just nowhere near enough information. And it's very confusing. <laughs> And it starts off like a normal song. Hey, come on, come on, touch me. Can't you see I'm not afraid? This is boilerplate. I love you. Let's get together. Okay, so far so good, right? Then he says, what was that promise that you made? Already, um, my head is starting to hurt because we don't know anything about anything. And it sounds like he also doesn't know anything about anything. It's like, how would you even know enough to ask that question? There's some, there's some lovemaking that this guy's trying to get going. I, that's all I right. think about with Jim Morrison is that he's trying to have sex with somebody. Right. Mainly because when I was a kid, the reason I hated him was because every girl that I wanted to have sex with wanted to dig up his corpse and have sex with it. <laughs> right. But already to me, with what was that promise that you made, I'm already off the rails. He may be saying, what was that thing you promised to me? But he should know because he heard that. I could still see a pleading man saying, what was that promise that you made? You know, like trying to say, don't forget, you promised me something. Okay, that is one way to say it. That is one way to say it. And I am taking the much more confusing view that maybe he got the idea that she made someone a promise, but he doesn't know what it was. He's like, hey, let's get together on Tuesday. And she says, um, I can't. I promised something to someone. And he says, what? 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 To who? But what was that promise that you made? This has thrown off my whole plan of touching you. So now he's hassling her. What was that promise that you made? Next line is, why won't you tell me what she said? Now we've brought in a whole other character. Right. We don't know who it is, what she said about what. 
Well, yeah, it's the, it's that she. Who is this she? Right. Now I don't know what you said or what she said. Right. Well, yeah, but we went from a situation where it seems like this guy's sitting there by candlelight or they're, they're <laughs> splashing in the surf under the moon or something like that. Right. To now they're having like an argument in the kitchen where he's like, why won't you tell me what she said? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like it's just a different, a different scenario. <laughs> Completely different. But, okay, this is my solution. I just hit on this like yesterday because you brought up this song. All right. It ties it together. So It makes so much more sense if when he says she, he is talking about you. So he simply has turned his head to someone else and is now referring to the girl he was just talking to. Why won't you tell me what she said? So this person also knows what the promise was. And he's asking them about the promise, you see. So he's like, uh, uh, what was that promise that you made? Turn to the other person. Why won't you tell me what she said? And then he says, I'm going to love you till the heavens stop the rain. <laughs> he leaps right back into songy song. There is some kind of potency to this song. I, I realize a lot of that comes from the like the Motown arrangement, like the rhythm and the horns and everything. It's just a cool sounding song in that way. I don't know. There's something kind of appealing and quaint and authentic sounding about it, even though I, I don't know if there's an authentic bone in, in Jim Morrison's body. Right. Never have really bought into the mystique of that guy. Yeah. But supposedly he hated this song and thought it was really vapid and would sing like lyrics about uh, wanting a blowjob and stuff when he was singing it live. And, ah. you know, it was it was written by Robbie Krieger. Oh, so we can't blame the writing on Jim Morrison. Well, I don't know. I don't know what he did. I don't know what that process was in the studio, whether he would then come in and spew lyrics over music someone else wrote. But the song was originally called Hit Me Instead of Touch Me. Uh-huh. And supposedly it was a reference to blackjack playing. So that's really strange, but I don't Mm. think that works into our narrative at all. (laughs) But when I put the word hit there instead of touch, it did sound like a guy who is on the outs with his lady rather than a guy who is trying to bang his lady. And I realize I'm using really sophisticated uh, uh, nomenclature here. He's trying to say, go ahead and hit me. I did something wrong. I'm a bad guy. And so then when he says, what was that promise that you made? Why won't you tell me what she said? He is digging for information about a conversation she had with someone else. Maybe this other person is someone into whose pants he tried to insert himself (laughs) and and, and maybe he's wondering what this one woman has said to his girlfriend or his wife or wh- whoever this person is that he's pleading with. Well, hit, yeah, Hit Me definitely matches better the tone of the uh, argument in the kitchen that you yes. that you posed. It's like, okay, that, that goes along with it. But even then, it still falls apart when he turns around and says, I'm going to love you till the heavens stop the rain. I'm going to love you till the stars fall from the sky. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that they just... Uh, Threw some different stuff together, and that works. I can't blame somebody who does that in a song and just says, I'll have a sentence about this and another sentence completely about something else. It usually uh, can be just fine. For some reason, this song, it always stood out to me and, and bothered me. I think it's the pronoun trouble. I mean, I honestly think that the reason it stands out is because rather than a lot of songs where you can say, well, maybe this, maybe that, this song right in the middle... Why won't you tell me what she said? If you didn't have that she in there, the rest <laughs> right. of it sort of works. You can make it work. Yeah. That a guy's pleading and saying, what was that promise you made to me? And then pledging his undying love, you know? Yeah. And then right in the middle, why won't you tell me what she said? Mind blown. <laughs> Jim Morrison did it again. <laughs> right. To me, it's similar to saying, you know, hey, girl, I would climb any mountain for you and cross any river. Where is the uh, dry cleaning ticket? And why did you not rake the backyard? I'm going to love you forever. It's like you're just all over the place, man. I'm always going to be here for you no matter what happens, even when the world ends. By the way, what was the name of that Chinese place you said was so good? (laughs) For you and I. Yes. For you and I, Chris. For you and I. Never had you figured for a Doors fan. I'm not really a Doors fan, but sure, I'd like to get into them. No, 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 my friend. Doors fans aren't made. They're born. (laughs) 
I think right now in Africa, there's some guy madly beating on a drum. He's a Doors fan. Or an old lady on the bus sucking humbugs. She's a rider on the storm, but she ain't never heard the sounds. So what about you? Well, I heard a record of theirs last night at a party. Yeah? And I've always liked Lover Madly. Well, if you become a Doors fan, Lover Madly is the only song you won't like. All right. I guess I should start with their greatest hits. Hey! Greatest hits albums are for housewives and little girls. You're not serious. You don't want to be a Doors fan. Get out of my store. Strength of Strings from, it sounds like it was 1974's album No Other. Yep. I have to admit, I did not know, I was having a hard time placing Gene Clark, and I mean, even though I know the birds rather well, but I, I wasn't clear on like what phase of the birds he was in the band, but he was the main songwriter for the birds for the first few years of their career and right. really kind of. He was a co founder. But I mean, I think a lot of those songs that we think of as the classic bird songs, I, I had thought some of those were written by Roger McGuinn that uh-huh. are not, that are written by Gene Clark. Yeah. And so he it, was in and out of the band, it seems like, for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was one of the first people to leave, but then he came back and they left and came back and left. Yeah. <laughs> I remember hearing the story, kind of sad story, when Tom Petty had a big hit with Feel a Whole Lot Better. The, right. the royalty the, money gave sort him of money to get back in the drugs and alcohol. Yeah, and, it, it sort of funded a relapse of Gene Clark. Right. So that's that's super sad and ironic that it would work out that way. Yeah, there's and he died in '91. Right, he died in '91, which uh, apparently, according to Wikipedia, there's a documentary about him that says that he he was uh, that he died of throat cancer. I want to say. Oh wow. Um. But of course, you know, just knowing the life of rock musicians, you know, when you die at 46 and you've had, you know, a drugs and alcohol lifestyle, we all just assume that that's what killed him. But yeah. so apparently it was cancer. You know, did you ever have that where, you know, when you were younger, that would have sounded old? Yeah. So like, oh, that guy lived to be 46 before he died. But now at, at uh, 42... Uh, I'm <laughs> 46 yeah. is scary close, you know, that was when my, when my 28th birthday was so depressing because I knew that, uh, all famous rock stars tend to die at 27 and, uh, I, I was still very much alive and not famous. <laughs> I'm like, I guess it's not going to happen. <laughs> no, So how did you come to this song, Strength of Strings? Uh, there's a band called This Mortal Coil. Mm-hmm. And in the 80s, they released an album, uh, and they covered this song. And I think it was 86. And I was very involved in college radio in the, the second half of the 80s. And so I first heard the song then. And it didn't really grab me. You know, it, it's a nice song, but, you know. I was I was a young man and very much into punk rock and this slow power song didn't really do much for me. Yeah, um, the, just from the intro alone, it's the opposite of punk, you know. Yeah, 
but then in the 90s, uh, my partner Jen got this box set of uh, this mortal coil that had one disc of the original versions of all the songs they had covered. Mm-hmm. So it had the Gene Clark version of it. And when I heard that, which, you know, this mortal coil were pretty faithful. So I, I don't know what it was, but for some reason hearing the Gene Clark version and maybe being 10 years older, uh, it, it grabbed me. I was like, this is a really great song. And stupidly, I never really sought out the album or anything. I just liked that song. And it really wasn't until a few years ago when, uh, for lack of a better word, hipsters discovered the No Other album that the song is from. I'm sad to say the rest of the album doesn't grab me as much as this song does, but it, it's, it is a great album. But this is definitely, I think, the best song on the album. And it's it's great to see this younger generation of musicians embracing this album and this this, this wonderful songwriter. Uh, from what I understand, I mean, I don't even really have, uh, I mean, I've, I have Bird's records, but I don't have any McGuinn Clark and Hillman or any of the other Gene Clark albums mm-hmm. to compare it to. But from what I understand, this was his masterpiece album. And like a lot of masterpiece albums, they spent a lot of money making it and it didn't really do that well didn't really sell critics loved it but audiences didn't buy it and it's just only been over the years that it's built up this like mythical status it starts off with what sounds like like a native american chant you know that each time it repeats it's built upon until eventually this song kicks in that doesn't seem to have anything to do with that intro i mean that's two minutes the first two minutes of the song there's just this repeated melody and uh no lyrics or anything and then when the song finally kicks in just this beautiful powerful (laughs) i don't even know how to put in the words Mm -hmm. by the time he starts singing you know i'm not expecting this kind of pained voice from a little bit of research i did i think he kind of went off to write this album it was kind of a a retreat where he just wrote the album in a kind of burst of having epiphanies and having all these thoughts it's like it does sound like a very mature work somewhere in the core of that there's this voice that that does sound like it's about to break right. at any time and i think that that definitely adds to the kind of there's a sadness to this song well it, it adds to i think both the that kind of haunting melody and the overall haunting sound of, of the song and it also adds to the lyrics which if you can find discussion of the lyrics online it, it a lot of the, the the few places where i've seen any discussion uh people have different interpretations of what the song is about. And I was very happy to see a couple people that have the same interpretation that I have, because I wasn't sure if I quite understood what he's singing about. Yeah. And, uh, but, but what I take it is that he's an artist that hears songs that he cannot make physical as physical as the instruments needed to make them physical. Mm-hmm. And, and it creates this sadness. And it's kind of funny for that to be what the song is about when the song is as good as it is. Yeah, and it's produced, you know, to to, to the nth degree as well. Because it's like, if you can't get the brilliant songs out of your head, you know, if this is the best you can do and you're hearing even better, oh man, I wish there was something we could do (laughs) to hear the songs you hear in your head. I mean, I I think every artist suffers with it. I know I do. Like, I I hear songs in my head that I wish I could write. You know, and I I see paintings that I wish I could paint. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I have yet to figure out how to get the ideas in my head into some physical form. And I I think that's what the song is about. That's how I interpret it. And I saw a few other 
people online that, that said similar things. Do you ever do voice memos of when you oh, have a yeah. song idea? Sometimes <laughs> yeah. you can't even capture that. You know what I mean? Sometimes when you're building a song up, you can't even get the simple beauty of just the melody you heard in your head. But Right. Because to me, it's like, when does the chord under the melody change and what, what point does it change? It's like it goes from something, I think in general, when I go through the process of writing a song, the idea becomes a lot more conventional than it was when I heard it in my head. And yeah. that's very hard to do because in your head, you, you're hearing, you know, whatever sound you can conjure up. So, And and for, you know, guys like us, it's painful enough. But for a guy like Gene Clark, whose livelihood and yeah. reputation depends on being able to write those songs that he hears in his head and then not be able to, I can see where the, the pained mm-hmm. voice would come from. Yeah. You know, and the, and the, you know, the pain in the lyrics and everything. So does the rest of the album have that ethereal kind of introspective feel to it? There's some of that on there. I've only listened to it you know, maybe five or six times. There, there really aren't any other tracks. I mean, it's a good album all the way through, but there aren't any other tracks that jump out at me the way this one does. And again, it could be because I've heard, I've known this one a lot longer than anything else. And, you know, I already love this song. I, I feel like I need to like keep listening to it. Like it's sooner or later, it's going to click with me and, and I'm going to love it all the way through, Yeah. which I like it all the way through. I'm not, I'm not, not putting it down. It's definitely a good record. Um, but this track, you know, I could just, I could, I could live with just this track and play it over and over <laughs> again. I don't need the rest of the album. The funny thing is, you know, when I first heard it, it was on this, this mortal coil box set which was an album that I only ever listened to in bed at night as I was going to sleep. You know, Jen and I would put this on and go to sleep to it. So what a great way to get familiar with this song, in bed, (laughs) half awake. I am Ben Ray, and this is the sound of my voice. I've been asking people if there's a song they just can't get out of their head. Um, right now, the song I can't get out of my head is Pretty Girls by Iggy Azalea. And what do you think it is? That is it just because it's a super catchy hook fest? It, it is such a basic sort of... Uh, there's not a lot to that song. So yeah, it's <laughs> it's nothing but a hook. Uh, that and uh, if, if for whatever reason Rachel senses that it has evaporated from my head, she'll come up and sing a line to me, and then it'll go right back into my head again. That's a very cruel thing for her to do. I think she likes the video more because it's a it's a reference to Earth Girls Are Easy, mm-hmm. um, which oh, okay. was a movie that she liked a lot. Yeah. So, Whatever happened to Julie Brown? I don't know. There was There's Julie Brown and downtown Julie yes, Brown. Yes, that's right. We've lost all of our Julie Browns. <laughs> um, but I would say, yeah, that... We had so many. We just thought the world was going to be full of Julie Browns, right. and now look at us. Uh, yes, we could use a few more Julie Browns wherever they are. <laughs> wubba, 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 goodbye, and always, God bless. But yeah, that that's the one song that's pretty much stuck in my head on a regular basis. And I, it's... I, it's not. It's got to be the hook because lyrically, it doesn't really pertain to it me. It doesn't speak to you. Ben? No, <laughs> you don't feel like a pretty girl. <laughs> Sometimes I do in my quiet moments. Well, that's how I describe you, Ben. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Hey, I'm Mike White from the Projection Booth. Is there a song that you can't get out of your head right now? Um, geez, what has been the one I've been singing lately? Actually, um, 
the song that got stuck in my head over the weekend that still is in there is um uh it's from avita and <laughs> it is the on this night song i don't remember what the name of it is on this night of a thousand yes on this night of a thousand stars on this night of a thousand stars let me take you to heaven's door where the music of love's guitar plays forevermore of course the mandy patinkin oh god what's her name ah the woman with the bad teeth Madonna? No, not Madonna. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> she does have a gap, though. She does have a gap, but yeah. Um, it's a sexy on. gap. I don't mean to talk bad about gaps. Yeah. Gaps are fine. <laughs> Mind the gap. <laughs> I befriended someone on Facebook called Mandy Patankin, and I was talking about how the commercial for Evita used to freak me the hell out because it was just a weird commercial. And I was seeing it on Saturday morning amongst cartoons. And mm-hmm. it was the whole thing, you know, Vita's coming to the Fisher Theater in Detroit kind of thing. And it just had like, you know, him as Che trying to make his way through the crowd and having, um, God, why am I blanking on her name? But having the, the woman that played Vita there, you know, like in her gown and all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, ah, this is just so weird. And then I went back and I watched the commercial again. I was like, yeah, this is kind of shot like a horror film. And I tagged him in the post and my God, he went off. So whoever this guy was, and I really hope that it wasn't (laughs) the real Mandy Patankin had no sense of humor and could not understand why people were kind of freaked out by seeing this, commercial for Vita as a five-year-old amongst the Saturday morning cartoons. (laughs) You know what? I remember that commercial, and I can totally believe that Mandy Patinkin would be that humorless. (laughs) Just just from what I've heard about him. Like, I love the guy, but I do believe that he would be oblivious and humorless. Patty Lupone (laughs) is the woman's name who I was trying to think of. And in that original commercial, also, in this set, Mandy Patinkin right over the edge watching that old commercial her teeth looked terrible and I was like I wonder when she got her teeth fixed and he just went nuts how dare you make fun of my sweet dear friend Patty and all that and it's like okay yeah so that's why I really I just I wish I hope that he's not that person but yeah like you I'm afraid that that is him. That could equally be someone just pulling your leg and the real Mandy Patinkin. And I think that Mandy Patinkin might need to, if he's listening, he needs to examine that because with the fact that we could believe a parody of him is him, he might need to, he might need to take stock. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to the guy too. I would love, love to do an episode on the music of chance. That's one of those mm-hmm. movies that I don't think too many people have seen. I'm, I've had the book for years. I'm, Basically, now I'm waiting for the chance to do an episode so I can read the book, compare these things, all this kind of stuff. But getting James Spader might be a little tough these days. Joel Gray might be a little bit easier, but barely. And then, yeah, if Mandy is as humorless as his Facebook account, I don't think I'm going to have any luck. Mike White, you're the guy who said stuff about Patty. Right. (laughs) My sweet friend. On this night of a thousand stars, let me take you to heaven's door, where the music of 
This is the sound of my voice. I have been asking people uh, to talk a little bit if there's a song that they just can't get out of their mm. head. I have been listening to Dion Warwick's greatest hits. Yeah. Do You Know the Way to San Jose ah. is my jam when I'm in the car alone. Do you have a history with Dion Warwick? No, I, my, I don't mean well, personally. I just mean is that someone you've been a fan of for a long time? My mom was a fan of um, you know that style of music, and she had a lot of records and mm-hmm. you know Supremes and that kind of thing. And so, but not Dionne Warwick specifically. Um, so there's something that feels slightly familiar about it. And um, my good friend Robert happened to have her greatest hits, and we were hanging out at his house, and I was like, "This is amazing!" And he was like, "Here, take it." I was like, I will take that. Yeah. And I've been listening to it pretty much nonstop. So, what is it about that particular song? I really love how, first of all, her, so many of her songs are about like, you know what? Screw you. I'm moving on. Yeah. And this was tough and ugly, but I, there are better things ahead. And really, that's kind of at the core of like, do you know this way to San Jose? It's like, L.A. sort of sucked and, you know, it can, like, kill your soul. But I'm going to go back to the people I love. And I'm like, man, not to get too metaphorical, but it's like, that's that's what I do on a regular basis. You know, my family is my touchstone. So I love that. And I just like, I like, I like her voice. It's just delicious. Well, it's, she's got that, I mean, in the world of Golden Throats today, everybody's a little bit more like, I guess melismatic is the word where it's uh-huh. like it's very overdramatic and everything. And it's like she definitely is an influence on a lot of those singers of today. Uh-huh. But it's there's an effortlessness to her singing that just doesn't yeah. sound like she's ever pushing it. Like it doesn't. I mean, I'm not saying I've never heard her deliver that kind of performance. Yeah. But the average performance of hers, especially from that kind of I guess it's the 60s yeah. era. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe she got more and more into that kind of diva-esque belting but that's just like a, a really well-constructed pop song and it's just it's just so smooth and her voice is like the fact that she's so talented it's just like every note is perfect but it never feels like she's trying to show you how many notes she can sing you know the way that a lot of uh, a lot of the golden throats are today she i never felt like there was an affectation yeah you know when she gets a kind of growly a little bit and gravelly it just felt like that was where she needed to go with it mm-hmm. and i it doesn't, um, it's not too polished. It's not too polished. There's there's a little, I don't know, there's a little edge to it. I, I really like her voice. I really love that song. Um, That's a Bacharach and David uh, composition. Yeah, and I got to see Burt Bacharach in concert a oh, few wow. years ago, performing with Elvis Costello. And that was, that was great. So I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. I am like unabashedly like bring on the, you know, go get them songs with the, you know, great arrangements. And I don't feel corny at all. I'm just like, in fact, I was driving around my suburb of Alexandria in my SUV, listening to Dionne Warwick at the top of my lungs with my toddler in the backseat. And I was thinking, I am so happy right now. I feel like such an amazing cliche of like a suburban mom, but I didn't care. I was, I was owning that and I didn't care. It was great. So that's my song right now. Payment fortune is a magnet. 
On the Wikipedia article, it says that in a 1983 interview with Ebony, Warwick said, it's a dumb song, <gasps> and I didn't want to sing it, no! but it was a hit. I'm happy these songs were successful, but that still doesn't change my opinion about them. Oh, well, that changes my opinion about you, Dion. <laughs> no, geez, what a sour note. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, all the stars that never were are parking cars and pumping gas. That's like, that's, that's some, that's like, that's some tragedy right there. I know. I didn't want Those to... are like unrequited dreams yeah. right there. Shut up, Dion. You're ruining it. <laughs> I, I still stand by my love of the song. So. Hey, she put it out. That's right. Yeah. Dummy. <laughs> <laughs> I realize, Chris, we've come to this point in the episode. I don't know that you've talked much about songs that have been stuck in your head. I mean, we talked about Eternal Flame and we talked about Touch Me by the Doors, but we didn't really talk about songs that we currently have stuck in our head. So I don't know. Do you have any? I jotted down a few that, um, yeah, that I sing all the time that I haven't heard for decades, but I still sing them all the time. I've got 37, 38 on my list. Okay, so we are probably pushing this podcast to um, conservative estimate. About 11 hours. All right. We can just talk about them. Just start the hard work of talking about yeah. them. Yeah. We'll get into it. Do you want to just go back and forth with them, Chris? I mean, if it turns out to be 11 hours, I'm sure that's going to be really entertaining for everyone. So the first one on my list is Henry VIII by Herman's Hermits. Second verse, same as the first. I'm Henry VIII, I am Henry VIII, I am. The first one on my list is Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. I came in like a wrecking ball. another one gets stuck in my head all the time every time i hear the word bristol for like a week i'll be singing the bristol stomp by the devels a similarly intoxicating song that is perhaps the catchiest song of all time and it's especially frustrating because you get it on your mind and there's only one part of it that you know if you're the average person that would be miss you by the rolling stones and I think everybody in the world has spent at least two years of their life going, ooh. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely that one. Um, I've got a couple here that are both similarly beepy. There must be something about Morse code-style beeping that, that sticks with me. One is uh, Western Union by the Five Americans. <laughs> And another one is the Nervous System, the Schoolhouse Rock Nervous System song. Come and get it by Badfinger. And I will sing the entire song, you know, like, and, and you can kind of put it on a loop. It's one where you can go from the verse to the chorus to the bridge to the verse to the chorus to the bridge. Yeah. And all the parts just lead into each other. Yeah. <laughs> so if someone's listening to you do it, there's no way off. It's a carousel that keeps going around. And anytime you're slowing down and you kind of take a breath and they think, oh, okay, we're getting off the ride. I can, then you go, Sonny. What I used to do to drive my wife crazy was like, she would think I was done. And then I would just walk up to her and then I would say, Did I hear you say that there must be a cat? Chris, this is fun. I, I kind of hope this is nine hours long. Keep going. I know. We can do this just all day. I definitely want to bring up uh, uh, Amy 
by the Pure Prairie League. Wait, 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 wait. Wow. All of these songs talking about getting them out of your head. But they're in my head now, and it's and it's kind of getting a little crazy. You guys need to slow it up a little bit. It's bothering me a bit. But we have more songs we could talk about. We've got a list right here in front of us. Stop it. You, you're, it's too much. All right. It's way too I, much. I can respect that. I know you gave Ronald the job of deciding when the podcast is over for the week, so that's all right. We kind of have to defer to him. Yeah. Ronald, I know what you're going to say, but before you do, you always seem to forget we've got to say some official stuff here at the end I of the show. I have a hairpin trigger on this thing. <laughs> I know. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad you take it so seriously, but I would actually ask you to back off the hairpin trigger. We always have to mention, you can reach us at infotasement at gmail.com to shake your fist at us. You can, in fact, just open up your email, <laughs> shake your fist, and then close your email. That's what I would advise. You can also find me on uh, Twitter at infotasement. And I should mention, since Ronald's here once again, you can listen to our other podcast we do together with our dear friend Steve Ritter, Movie Schmovie, which we may have the .com up and running by this time, but definitely movieshmovie.net, where, where all the fine uh, episodes of that podcast are posted. Thanks again to Jamie for setting up the uh, Second Course Media Podcast Network. And now, Ronald. <sighs> <clears throat> this podcast is over. 